Hello, Irenacast listeners. Before we get into today's episode, I just want to give you a heads up in the beginning. We had some technical difficulties this week, so our audio quality isn't up to the standard that you may be used to if you're a regular listener to the show. However, the content of our episode this week is on par with the quality that we usually bring you here at Irenacast. So without any further ado, enjoy this week's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenacast. I'm your host, Jeff, and with me, as always, are my co-hosts, Mona and Alan. We are post-evangelical ministers and theological thinkers grappling with our place in the progressive Christian world. Thank you for joining us for another conversation on faith and culture. This week, we are going to be exploring the subject of the art versus the artist, the message versus the messenger, or the theology versus the theologian. And for our segment, uh, we're going to be bringing back an old segment called Say What? But before we get to our conversation today, we have a couple announcements for you. Uh, You were listening to this, if you're listening on the day of post, September 27, 2016. And I don't know how many of you listening, or even my illustrious co-host, realize that this Friday, September 30th, is International Podcast Day. And in... It's right. Amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And we are going to be celebrating accordingly, showing our thankfulness for the medium, the platform that has given us a voice. And we are going to be releasing a bonus episode on International Podcast Day. And unfortunately, Mona and Alan will not be joining me for that episode. But I'm bringing in former guest host Adam, as well as former guest host from all the way back from episode 19, Dylan Van Lant. And we are going to be doing a film critique of the movie God's Not Dead. Just look at that movie and kind of deconstruct the themes a little bit. So if you're interested in that, you'll check your feed and uh, it'll be right there for you. And if you're not subscribed already, you should do that on either iTunes or Google Play. And that, that way, when that episode airs, you will be it'll be right there on your phone or device or whatever. Um, so I think that's all the announcements we have for now. With that aside, let's get into our subject. So our subject is... Theology versus theologian or art versus the artist. And basically the premise here, um, this was kind of a subject that I wanted to bring to the table. The premise here comes was sort of inspired by a couple things. Is number one, uh, finding out recently one of uh, my favorite theologians slash writers, John Howard Yoder, uh, love his stuff, recently found out that there is a, a massive cloud above John Howard Yoder, as far as uh, allegations of sexual assault and violence towards women and all kinds of awful, atrocious things, similar in line with all the things that we're seeing in the news about Bill Cosby and all the wonderful things that he created with the show and even his art. And now all these horrible, ugly, disgusting allegations. I I guess it's allegations. It sure feels like it's more than that. And then in addition to uh, a movie that's coming out soon, called Birth of a Nation, which is a really important film uh, about the, the the black slave experience in our country and allegations of that director had rape allegations against him and actually him and another person in college, one of which was actually sent to prison for the crimes and he just faced trial but was acquitted, I believe, Nate Parker. And th- how that's clouded this movie that that could be really important. And by all intents and purposes from critics so far is, is, a, is a really, really well done movie. And uh, so, yeah, so this is an interesting question I think that we could tackle here on the show is when does a creator, someone who's bringing something to people, whether it's theology or art or whatever, when does their work become devalued and when can we ca- or when should or if we cast aside their work because of what they've done or who they are? The Yoder thing is like really personal for me as well. John Howard Yoder's stuff uh, was very influential in my 
development as a pacifist, especially tied to my Christianity. And he was influential for people that I really looked up to, like Shane Claiborne and others, um, formed kind of this really big legacy. And to find out that somebody who speaks about pacifism and violently forces themselves on, I think the the number was like 50 to 100 different women. I read a, um, an article by Lisa Church, who is one of the Mennonite women who is involved in theology, um, makes the claim that John Howard Uter affected generations of pacifistic theologians, especially Mennonite women. Like some of the victims were his peers at the time. Um, some of them were students and the way that the church handled that the controversy basically affected women's presence in that context for generations that there's, she, she says she can't even think of one woman who is a like Yoder theologian who studies his work um, as their primary focus. So it's, it's, it's a big deal. And I mean, he was one of the most well-known pacifistic theologians in the world at the time. So um, what, what do you do with that is a good question. You know, how do you reinterpret some of the stuff that he wrote in light of now knowing the way that he acted at the time he was writing this stuff? I think so. I have a hard time getting away from. I have some ideas about this, but I'm really glad Jeff is bringing it up because I don't know what to think sometimes. Absolutely. You know, it's funny. It's, um, I talked about Tillich the last couple of weeks and Tillich is one of my favorite theologians, but Tillich had a famous affair. He had famous, several famous affairs, I understand, with students and whatnot. Um, but I think he he traveled around with his mistress. And at, for a period of time, his mistress even lived in the house, even though his wife like vehemently opposed that and it caused a lot of discord in his home. Um, it's still this really strange like forced polyamorous relationship, I think. So it, you know, it's, it's really interesting that a lot of theological figures have really strange, if not incredibly unhealthy, if not violently aggressive and abusive, um, sexual proclivities in particular. So I don't know what to do with that. Obviously the individuals are to blame for their actions. They're responsible agents for what they've done. But you also look at the context of, a very patriarchal culture historically and places of power that basically go unquestioned, right? Like ministers, theologians, professors, things that traditionally you didn't scrutinize. And so that like unhealthy mix allowed that stuff in some ways to kind of fester. But so it didn't cause it though. I mean, no, like, I just, I, it's mind boggling. Right. It's mind boggling, you know, that these behaviors can even exist or happen at all. Yeah. And with people who, who utter eloquently beautiful words that lift people to the, to the divine, I don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Cause it's, there's, there's all that stuff that goes with it. Like something like with Yoder and even, you know, outside of the theological sphere, like Cosby, I mean, was dubbed for the longest time, like America's dad. It's especially hard because the things that they put forward are the exact opposite of the things that they were doing. Right. When the act, when the action itself contradicts the very message that's being sent. Yeah. And, right. and not only that, but then, then we have like, you know, 
our Protestant forefathers are all deplorable people as well. So then where's that line between like historical context? I would argue that for Yoder and Cosby, historical concert context doesn't matter because even within that context, what they did was, was pretty horrible. Um, but then you go back into, you know, theologians that were slave owners. And then you go into the, I mean, the horrible anti-Semitic stuff with Martin Luther and all this stuff. I mean, you can go back into our our own scripture and David and how David handled his relationship with women and yet dubbed man after God's own heart. You know what I mean? Like, so it seems to be this thing that happens all the way through. And I wonder if at the heart of it, at least, is this idea that, you know, Paul talked about in Romans, that you do what you don't want to do and all this kind of stuff. But just that psychological thing is that sometimes the things that we're doing are trying to compensate for something that we already are. So maybe the reason that the the message of Yoder especially was so opposite from what he was actually doing, because maybe he was just trying to present an ideal, not just for people, but desperately for himself as well. Not that that's an excuse. Of course, I don't want to say that. Sort a, of. He, well, him specifically, there's also some interesting things that he was writing right around the time of his death that were, that were basically long form explanations for justifications for what he did, kind of. And um, sort of like victim blaming. That's how people have read it. And I think even one one witness or one um, victim said he was like trying to uh, establish some new sort of Christian sexual ethics. I think it's important to know that like he supposedly he might have had some affairs, but in his like forceful stuff, he molested. And um, he I don't think he ever nobody ever said they were raped by him. Like he didn't have sex with them. But anyway, he was actually developing in his mind these big theological justifications for what he did, you know? So it's like, wow, I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And, um, but I even think of people like, uh, in, in other circles too, like Mark Driscoll, right? He's this person who represents for a lot of people, what being biblically founded and faithful to God looks like, but he's kind of a dick and, uh, has been abusive behind the, the scenes and the way he's handled people who are under his authority and you start to question the message. Right. And that's, well, at least for him, his message was consistent with (laughs) (laughs) that's true. There was a little bit less of a discrepancy, but like if you want to go all the way to like the, the Hitler thing, everybody always uses that right in these scenarios. What would happen if Hitler was involved? Well, there actually were, there, there is a whole bunch of medical science that was done in the name of like furthering humanity at the expense of people who were in concentration camps. And it's like, what do you do with that? What do you do with the medical quote unquote discoveries that like were done at other people's expenses without their consent? The UN sealed them. That's what they did with it. I think so. The UN sealed it from use that research because they don't want to set a precedent for benefiting off people's pain for medical purposes. Right. I think it's important though for me and in my conception of of reality that like and this is actually made in uh Lisa Search's article that I read at the time Yoder did some of this stuff it might not even be considered criminal like it might have been a good taste but there wasn't the evolved ethics that we have now toward uh like sexual misconduct and um harassment and stuff like that. We actually have the criminal language now, but she says it's still important to name that as criminal we even have if society of rights. Yeah, mm-hmm. even if society hadn't gotten to the point. So if you look back at slavery, like slavery was criminal. It may have been justified by the state, but it's a crime against humanity, you know, against our humanity. 
So I, I think it's important for me to look back at, or even the founder of uh, Planned Parenthood, right? Didn't she dabble in eugenics and yeah. like racism and stuff? Even though there's good things that came out of it, like really good things, it, it makes you wonder. I mean, should we even expect people to be absolutely perfect in everything they do? Um, probably not. Is it worse when their like life contradicts like the absolute definition of their message? Yeah, it seems to me like we're talking about individuals in particular because it seems like organizations that are founded or entities it, like they can absolutely be besmirched by horrible scandals. Um, like a lot of religious communities have such scandals and things like that. Um, <clears throat> but it seems like there's an element of being able to recover from that because that entity is bigger than the founder. It's bigger than a single person. But when it comes to someone's art or their body of writing they you know devoted their life to creating it's very difficult when their cre- their personal credibility falls apart and they're no longer see- seen as someone to follow or emulate or look up to and what happens i think the question we're trying to answer is like what happens to their body of work is their it message, still right their message is it still art for art's sake i mean i still like bill cosby is a good example um you know his his comedy was so and I think this came. This is why he. Everyone was so shocked when all of the allegations started coming to the fore because his comedy was so, in many ways, it was considered very wholesome and very real and very family oriented and very moral. I mean, this is like so different than the private life that he apparently led. And um, I think it's really it feels like a betrayal to a lot of people who loved him and loved his art. And um, yeah, well, well, not only Bill Cosby's comedy but his show the cosby show was monumental for african-americans in our country like it was a big shift from the family like having the black neighbors or even even a a step forward from the jeffersons before that as far as like it was it was a black family in a in a situation that you did not see and you still don't even see all that much in tv today in in a prominent upper middle class you know professional setting and uh nuclear family or whatever we want to call it like that show is and was very significant and i think what what makes that harder to go through is the fact that it was called the cosby show like it was it wasn't just a character you you got the sense that when you saw cliff huxtable it was bill cosby which was weird you know it was called the cosby show but his character was cliff huxtable and you like that that's really that's really much more difficult to um, to really delineate in your mind, you know, like how do you, how do you reconcile it? And then how do you, as an African-American, I can't even imagine reconcile that, like this was significant. And then what do you do with that work? When does it, when does the work become null or is it like a temporary thing? Like I can't go back and watch the Cosby show, but is that temporary? Like in five years from now, am I going to be able to stop and rewatch it and appreciate it for what it was or how long Probably is that? Not. <laughs> that's, that's what my question was. Like, you know, there have been pe- famous people in history had like weird, strange things about them, but their work survived them. And they, you know, in a hundred or 500 years, people are still reading it. So I, I think it's the opposite. I think we're now realizing it's important to read the social history of their context, their everyday life, who they were as a person in interpreting their work. I think before there was this like heady division between thoughts and ideas and what we are, you know, and regular life didn't matter as much. Um, you look at all the classical Greek texts and stuff, right? These are these amazing, but the, the real lives of people help us interpret what, what they have created. And I think that, um, that's really good. Looking back, looking back at like 
Cosby, uh, it's harder. It's a bigger fall than maybe even Yoder. Yoder's uh, work was very academic. It was books. It was kind of thought life, right? Um, Bill Cosby is more like an embodied thing. He is the message. Like his, his life and who he was, his presence was like the icon. It was no longer just him. It was something bigger than him. But it, like that, his message was him that you can uh, like appreciate life and live that way as a viable option. So uh, if Yoder were more like his, you know, one of his predecessors, one of his uh, followers or whatever, Shane Claiborne, whose message was, hey, I'm going to actually take nonviolence and communal living and put it into practice. And we're going to do this together. And he wrote books based on that as like a very embodied thing. It would be different, you know? So basically what I'm trying to say is I think that, we reinterpret just out of necessity the the things that people have said or created once like we get to know them as a real human being. And the more their message is about themselves, the harder it is to reinterpret that in a good way. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, it's 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 responsible criticism to take that into account when you're looking at someone's artwork. I mean, look at uh, you know, without without tossing it out, right? Like to reinterpret it. Yeah. Well, it, it presumes that like what you're saying is really significant in saying that like nobody can create disembodied knowledge or art. It's always yes, contextual. Always. It's always from their perspective. Yes. So they are always an inextricable part of the work. Is that what we're agreeing on? Because then what about works that are anonymous or works that we don't know who the author was like from antiquity that's still considered art. Like that person could have been a total asshole, but we don't know. <laughs> so, so is, is it like what what you don't know can't kill the art, or like should we just not inquire into those things? Because maybe at the end of the day, like all art would be ruined because people have horrible things about them. It, most people have like issues and problems that are broken. You know? That's why I love ruthlessly honest creators, people who are dealing with the human condition and themselves. I just think of Kurt Vonnegut, honestly, like people who are like. Interpreting not through values of what they want to be, but of who they are, you know, and that and maybe that's low art or something. Lower. No, I would say that's high art. Like maybe, maybe the art that doesn't that doesn't really expose someone's soul or show you who they really are is like a gimmick. It's like it's a caricature. It's a fiction. It's not actually. It's not actually art. But sometimes it's a useful fiction, right? Like I'm thinking of Martin Luther King. I I, I don't know. I haven't like researched all of his life, um, but I know that there were allegations that you know he had affairs and stuff like that in the middle of his his ministry. His books are like strength to love, so central and crucial to me, like who I am as, as a Christian, and the fact that he had affairs like doesn't take that away necessarily, even though he's helping me aspire to be something even better than he was or I was or we were. But that was his message, right? We as a community can aspire to things that we're not currently at. There has to be an element of us liking heroes falling, right? We we love it. We love it when a good hero collapses and shows their real personhood. And we almost cherish it because it helps us cope with the fact that we're not attaining what we want to be. I have something really controversial to offer here do it (laughs) (laughs) um i I don't know if i so much resonate with what you're saying alan i mean i i 
and feel a personal feeling of disgust when the heroes fall and tragedy. Um, right. But I always wonder like what happened to that person to make them abusive or, to, mm-hmm. you know, cause I like behaviors that are unfortunate or um, irresponsible are one thing, but to actually like abuse and harm other people is another. Right. So I always wonder though, because most people who do those things have had horrible things done to them or they're undergoing a life of such pressure and stress that they have to find outlets somewhere because they're not getting enough care themselves. Right. And I think, I don't know, I don't know about the Dr. King situation, but it probably was something like that given what his career was like. Um, I, not to say that that justifies it, but all to say it's interesting to me, the thought, and this, this is like really shaky ground that I'm on. So I love your feedback. Um, but it's really interesting. The thought that perhaps people who have a lot of issues tend to dabble into areas of brilliance, like mentally, like things and thoughts. And um, they, they go into like stratospheres that other people who have like very healthy, solid relationships don't go into because they're either escaping or they're pushed in those directions. Did, does that kind of make sense? Like, yeah, like, the, like the classic, classic author who is tortured, but creates this amazing, beautiful, like uh, all quiet on the Western front, right? The, author yeah. is depressed and dealing with just terrible things, but we look at their work and it's just next level. Like you said, stratosphere. All, all the great painters are like that too. I mean, right. It's amazing. Yeah. We well, so, have that with I mean, the whole, I mean, kind of like the nineties grunge scene, you know, like it was all this mm-hmm. angst and stuff coming out in their art. And, you know, you mentioned something along with that is that idea of, of when your art is noticed that, gives you a semblance of power and the more it's noticed the more power you have and power like literally changes our brain and puts us in a place to be less empathetic towards other people i mean i was listening to i think it was a recent episode of the the hidden brain podcast and they talk about this idea how how strong powerful like we have measured results of people becoming less empathetic the more power they get it makes sense. I mean, it's like a it's a classic superhero or god complex. Sometimes fame, fame and credibility and and power makes people think like they're above the rules, that they're better than others, that they there won't be consequences for what they do, and they can just literally take whatever they want. And sometimes and that, it's true. <laughs> but but see that but that means that capability lies within all of us. So where's the line? Where where do we say this person's work is invalid or shouldn't be recognized? You know, I mean, how many people own one of Hitler's paintings before he rose to power? Like, where's where's that line? The irony is that Hitler, Hitler, like, in his personal life, was actually, like, a really moral, like, spotless kind of... I don't think he had any, like, personal scandals to speak of that we know about. That's that's the weirdest part of this. I don't understand it. Like, you would think that people would be, like, all nasty people or good people. And that's not the way life works. If if you want to... That just reminded me, popped into my head. There's a gif out there of... Hitler like signing autographs and a woman tries to kiss him and it's like this really humanizing moment and you're like man I don't want that person to be humanized right or seeing Trump going on uh, Jimmy Fallon and having him humanized it's like I don't so I guess it works both ways you see somebody that that's this paragon of human virtue and they really screw up and you see these people who are terrible despots and evil people who have these bright shining moments of humanity um did you just call I, Trump a despot and evil? I don't... Hitler. Okay. Sorry, Hitler. All right. I was All right. thinking of Hitler. 
I jumped right. back to that. Okay. Just to clarify. Not, no, no. He's, he's I, I'm not saying he's a despot. I am saying Hitler was. Thank you All for right. clarifying that. Sure. But um that I think the point for me is like it, it works both ways. It's easy to demonize people that we know do very in my and I'm gonna say sinful because that's how I interpret it, or unjust or evil things. Um, they're still people, you know, they're still human beings and people who are these amazing icons that are pulling us towards something better. They're also still people. And so I think it has to be reinterpreted both ways. Yes. Um, But at the same time, it also has to reflect, like, I think this goes back to the idea of like the inner whatever, like don't get, well, you already got me started on the whole Jimmy Fallon Trump thing. I thought that was (laughs) deplorable and ridiculous that anyway, (laughs) I, I even tweeted, right. follow me on Twitter at Jeff Manildi. And I even tweeted, I retweeted a clip of when Trump was on um, David Letterman's show. And David Letterman used that opportunity to call him out on his bullcrap in a way that was entertaining and fun, as opposed to like making him out to be this like, uh, anyway. Showing his childhood home. Yeah. Yeah. Which but, would have been yeah. different if it was like, if it was like a representation of a change that was happening. That's one thing. You know what I mean? Like if it was like, okay, here's Trump. He's done all this stuff. And now he's trying to like, he genuinely had some kind of change. And now he's really trying to, to represent himself. But that wasn't it. It was, it was a PR thing. You know, it's that balance between when is the art really reflective of the person themselves? Like it, it's interesting because it, you can even see in their art the struggle. And sometimes with, with fictional art, it's even more obvious because maybe they feel like they have more freedom to kind of express things beyond than if they were just being literal with what they were talking about. Like, look at Mel Gibson's movies, the ones that he's directed, Braveheart, Passion of the Christ, and now this new one coming out, I forget the name of it. But they're all these freedom fighters, these people who want to make lives better for everyone else in the midst of extremely violent situations. And you can't not separate that from uh, middle to late-aged man who is a devout Catholic and all the the guilt and everything associated with that kind of upbringing and, and the things that you can read about online about his upbringing and all that kind of stuff. Like, those things are a part of who he is and those struggles are coming out in the fiction that they're writing. Yeah, but that's not the whole sum of those things. I, I'm inclined to say, after this conversation, I actually walked into this not knowing actually what I thought about this and I think I'm inclined to say <laughs> that... Uh, I really do think you should separate the art from the artist and the theology mm. from the theologian. I, I really think that that work should be judged on its own merit. I honestly do. Now, in the case of the Cosby show, yes, watching that now would make me feel queasy. I read this the other day. I thought it was really fascinating. The phenomenon of disgust that people feel is a result of a sense of contamination that boundaries have been crossed that should not be crossed. And it's a natural necessary evolutionary phenomenon if we had never if we don't experience the feeling of disgust we actually fail to survive right because you eat poison or you break boundaries and you interbreed and you don't survive as a species so that's like a really necessary evolutionary trait that we possess so when we have um when we have food disgust it means that there's contamination the boundaries been crossed if you have emotional disgust it means that a taboo or a boundary has been crossed that makes you feel unsafe. So I think when that disgust kicks in, I think it's a natural, right? It's a natural response saying like something has been violated here and I no longer want any part of it. 
And I think that's an important thing to listen to. Then what extent would you say that the art needs to be separated from the artist? Like out of the three of us, Mona, you are the artist. Like you, I I would consider you an artist with everything that you do. Um, Very talented one, by the way. Uh, And I I thought your guys' creativity episode said we all are. And here I was thinking I was an artist. Alex was left out. Alex was left out. <laughs> All right. Well, she has a higher degree of artistry than, than we have. Um, so, <laughs> so, but, but to what extent do you want people to evaluate your art separated from you and your context and what it came from? Like, you, I hope it lives beyond me. I mean, I, I think a lot of the stuff that I paint makes no sense unless you know me and you know the story behind it. Like I, I talked about the two, the painting of the toothbrushes or something. Um, and I paint a lot of things that are like in my psyche or whatever and music too. But, um, the whole point of creating is so that something lives beyond you and is becomes bigger than you and becomes more than you. It's like having a child. Like, you don't, I don't hope to, I don't hope to, um, control every aspect of my child's life or their personality or what they go on to do. But you certainly Um, want to celebrate the things that influence the things that they do. Like there's, a, that's what I'm saying. Is that how? Like to yeah, what extent like is that? They'll always be a part of me. They'll always be a part of me because they're my child. Exactly. But they're not me. And I think in the same way, my art is not me. It's something different than me. It's something I created, but it's it takes on a life of its own. But it came from you, and right. it has pieces of you. So like, what, like I, I, I don't know how you it's can't. Both. Yeah, it's both. So I don't know if we can say that you you need to take into account an art in of itself, like because then when that art comes, like. When I like, let's say, for instance, I look at one of your paintings and it came from a very personal place from you, but so is the nature of art. You put it out there and that's good art gives everyone a space to find a way to connect to that particular piece. But isn't, isn't that kind of the point of art is to all give us a place where we have common ground, even though that common ground we relate to in different ways and to separate that from the people or from the, even the creator that created it. I just don't, I don't know. So let me ask you this. Is it possible for people to write great fiction about worlds that they've never seen or experiences that they've never had? Sure. No. Sure. Great? No. Yes. Yes, I think so. Then, then okay, then, then the Lord of the Rings wouldn't exist. Okay? No, that's not then, true because there are themes. Question. There are themes in there. Like they can create worlds, but there's still themes in there that I believe that great work always is connected to themes that either the author is struggling with or is experienced or is a part of it. Yeah, I mean, sure. Yeah, but I'm saying like someone can write a fictional character who has experiences and attributes that that author never had. They can. That's what I'm trying to say. Yes. They can. Yeah, and they can do it dang believably and it can really touch people's hearts and and That's that's where I would say I don't know. That's why I don't know if they can do it believably. I think they can create a believable world with those personalities, but I think that the personalities that stand out in a great work, I can't not believe that the people who created them that there are things that they relate with about that. Like that it's coming from somewhere. Well, okay, your point well taken, but I just presume for the sake of the conversation that that that's possible. That people can imagine experiences and, and and realities that are much better than they themselves have experienced or they themselves can cre- create an actual life like the human imagination is able to go beyond what people have inherited or are capable of actually right otherwise we wouldn't be able to imagine people flying or imagine people going to different places or or different galaxies or you know all, all to say i i think that it's possible for a really amoral damaged person to write really moral, healthy work if they can envision, if they try to envision like a better 
reality or structure of reality or, or, right. or, or they try to access truth, right? Like, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. So All I'm saying, I think you should judge, you should <laughs> judge work on its own merit, period. Take Before, into account the creator, but judge it on its own merit. Before you move on from that, you, you just nailed, I think, where I'm arrived. I didn't know where I was going to be, but I think we've arrived at a distinction. I don't think there is this uh, disembodied truth that, that just exists on its own. Like uh, I, I used to. I used to believe that ethics and morals and beauty and, and all of this stuff existed on its own in some sort of platonic way. There were these forms that were out there like numbers, and the universe kind of conforms to them, and we can create something that's uh, you know beautiful on its own. But for me, it's essentially particular to the thing. You know, like if I... If I saw a painting and it was an accident, right, like I would react to that differently than um, if I knew it had a painter or somebody who had interacted with it. Do you yeah, know what but, I mean? No, that, but that's not the question here. Like we know, we know people have, we know art has a creator. We know theology has a, a writer. But if that were true, if it's inherently um, non-separable, then if you don't know who the creator is, then you inherently can't appreciate it. Because it has no, you have the, no right. interpretation. But you have an, but as long as it's an anonymous creator is still a creator. Anonymous author is still an author. You know yeah, but I mean? if you don't, you're saying if you don't know their character, you don't know anything about them, then you can't oh, no. access the art or appreciate the art for its you own sake. You can because we have the human situation in common. So that's know? what I'm saying about crappy people who make good things. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm saying and, the and same it, thing. Yeah, and it's the fact that they're tied to their art that we, we can relate it to it. Well, I don't. I think those are two different questions because I don't think I don't think crappy people are incapable of making good art. But I'm just saying that people are incapable of making art that is not reflective of some part of who they are. Oh, I agree with that. But I still think you should be able to separate the appreciate art. appreciate the thing for itself, take into account. Because you know, I just get really frustrated with a, a lot of the identity politics that exist today. That um, honestly, if you walk into a college campus and you say the name of somebody who has, you know, has deep skeletons in their closet, it's very common for students to say things like, oh, well, they're just a bad person and I'm not even going to engage with their art or I'm not even going to engage with their literature because there's this, this and this wrong with it. Like there's a couple bad words in there that are non-politically correct. You know, it, it really I think it it prevents people from actually critically engaging in a really holistic way. You know, just it—it it is the proverbial "throw the baby out of the bathwater." Yeah, and, it's and, a lo logical fallacy. It's something yeah. like appeal to smearing someone's character to discredit their work is no, at least in logistic academic circles, that that's like a faux pas. You don't do that. You work with the the thought, not the person. Yeah, but that that doesn't presume that it's disembodied truth, right? You can still right. you can have that and still acknowledge that that art or that thing that is created is still very much a part of this person and take that into account as you interpret it. Like you said earlier. Um, yeah. Like critically look at it. Mm -hmm. But when does it get to a point where you can't even do that? So there's no line. Like, let's say, let's say for instance, I, I think we can all agree that none of us here are fans of Donald Trump, but let's say he releases a book that is just amazing, amazing. And it's huge. And he puts it out, and it it is it is like right up all of our like it is just amazing. I mean, would you even take the time to read it? I would if it was that good. Of course, I would. I would give him credit if he actually did. The, 
I mean, I wouldn't believe that he actually wrote it, but if he actually wrote it and it was a good book, like I really honestly think like we should take people's arguments, yeah. no matter who they are, like you should weigh their, that thing for its own self and not throw it out just because you don't happen to like the person. I mean, I, it's I different if the person is abusive or dangerous. Mm-hmm. That's different. I, even then, mm-hmm. I think it's important. I, honestly, like I, I think it's an important practice and I do this on YouTube all the time. There are people that I find completely to be completely off-putting and people I think that are totally wrong and I could never see things from their perspective. I routinely suspend judgment and listen to their perspectives. Otherwise I just create a little bubble for myself. So yeah, I I think it's important to engage the art and ideas and literature of people that you wildly disagree with. I read Mein Kampf when I was younger. I read everything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Communist manifesto, like uh, satanic Bible, like all these other things that for me, it's like, you're engaging people who are completely different than you is part of what <laughs> this is ironic Yoder like talked about. And that that's a part of the pacifistic tradition is that you understand the enemy or the person <sighs> that you completely disagree with um, by like actually thinking about what has led up to where they're at and taking those things into account, not justifying evil or wrong ever, but getting a better holistic picture of a person's life or art, I think is always better than not. You Even know? if they benefit so I, from I it. I think I agree. Uh, that, so there is a line there, I think. But that's what I'm saying is like, if, it, if Trump more, puts out that book, you're buying that book and they're benefiting from right. you getting that. So I wouldn't have bought Mein Kampf if Hitler was using that money for his work. You know what I mean? Like there, there, there's that's, a that's our outright supporting that's a, yeah that's a different, totally different conversation yes but 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 it's, it's an important question um I just think it's maybe a little bit different do you guys think it's different when it comes to ethics and religion and other types of art like like painting does it matter as much I think religious leaders have a different standard mm-hmm. I don't think that it's a different standard that they should be held to on a certain level but I think it makes it more difficult to hold that standard depending upon how visible the artist is with their art. Like going back to Bill Cosby, it's his face. He's right there in front of us. We see that. Yoder, maybe you look at the back of the book to see his picture, but you're just like, their words are almost disembodied from the person from your perspective. So I think it's, it's a, I don't think the standard should be differently, but I think that just because of who we are as humans, where our approach is going to be different. I think there's absolutely difference. I think, if someone stands up and is a self-proclaimed teacher or leader in any capacity, they're automatically held to a different standard because they're asking people to emulate and follow them. So right. if their life doesn't line up, if their life is full of moral you know, indiscretions and abusive behaviors, then they are more responsible. Bill Cosby was an entertainer. He doesn't, I mean, right? I mean, he had a lot of theoretical knowledge and I think he had a, he didn't even, did he have his doctorate in early child education? You know, but, yes. but that's, to me, that's judging an entertainer by the same standards as like a pastor or a religious leader, or even a theologian who stands up and says, follow me. The thing is about artists, artists don't presume to be leaders. In fact, they're more like the gestures of society that show the ugly underside of what society is doing and try to br- bring truth to light. So they're not, they're not standing up and saying, Hey, look at me. I'm, I'm a moral person at all. And, and I think that that is a definition of leadership uh, that needs to die, personally. My, I, I went to a um, clergy meeting this last uh, – maybe it doesn't need to die, but at least in my life it does. I went to a clergy meeting, and they asked me how my theology has changed over the last year. 
And my answers were over the last five years, but especially the last year, I have thought about ministry completely differently. And that's tied to how I think about how God relates to the world. And it used to be that I think ministers were these people out front, pulling the whole group, you know, shepherding everybody. They're the under shepherds of Jesus. And they're these paragons of virtue that you, you, you emulate. And uh, we were told, like, you can't lead someone where you've never been. And so basically the whole congregation is following the minister. Now I look at it totally differently. I'm not dragging a congregation behind me. I'm joining each and every individual who has their own particular path to follow, their own faith, their own conceptions of theology and ideas. And really it's me coming alongside and like discovering and being a partner than it is like pulling and pushing. And so I think the it's tough when it comes to religion because we have lived for so long with ideas of religious leaders that have to fail, right? When the message is follow me, I've I've got it figured out or I have it together, that's gonna fail no matter what. You know, not not that we can't aspire to something better, but I think the way it's been set up in the past has been unfortunate. Going back a little bit, I, I have a problem with the fact that someone who's a pastor, a teacher, a theologian, it, that we we pit them against an entertainer as the entertainer is lesser than the other person. I think that someone who's... I didn't say lesser than. Well, Just not different. lesser, but, but I don't even say different as far as their influence at, on society. I would say that it is more of an influence, at least in our culture... Um, what an entertainer does and the stuff that they put out there as far as like being an example or being a voice. I think may- maybe it's the word being an example, going back to what Alan just said, is that idea of like we we expect our artists to be examples as opposed to I'm just putting this out there. Uh, and maybe that maybe that's the the whole crux of it is that our expectations for what what it means for a person to put themselves out there is, is the part that's wrong. No, I, I don't know. I, I disagree. I think Entertainers aren't standing up on stage and telling people in a sermon, follow me as I follow Christ. I am your leader. They're right. not asking people to do that. In fact, a lot of times they're like, I'm a piece of crap. Don't, don't be like me. Like, <laughs> uh, I mean, like stand up comics, for example, like yeah. notoriously depressed and alcoholic and have substance abuse problems and have been doing like horrible things. You know, that's, that's why, and this is kind of what I was trying to say earlier. That's why a lot of stand up comics become stand up comics because it's a way they've learned to cope with horrible things in life. And I guess what I'm trying to say is maybe people who have these double lives um, have been through things that gives them a certain perspective and a sort of like a perspective that can offer us information, if not wisdom in some cases, but I want to qualify that very strongly that that doesn't justify that behavior, but it does present different perspectives that, that maybe we can learn from. I don't know, but I think that can be dangerous. All right. I think that so let's kind of <laughs> let's put this down and find out where we're at. So we all agree that you can't separate the work from the person who created it. That there's you always going to be an inter as far as like it there's always they're interconnected on one level. Yes and no. I think that I think that's actually the base of our conversation where we're kind of going around is the question of reader response and authorial intent. No, that's I think like we all, fe- no, but we all agree through that about that. Yeah. It, it's just to what degree? Right. That's what we disagree on. Yeah. That a work can have a life of its own outside, outside of the despicable creator. Yeah. I worked with a professor who talked to, who works with a Reformation text and was talking about how rich this professor is that like the students don't seem to take a lot of interest and just say, Oh, those are really antiquated works. Like we don't have to learn them. And she, you know, she said, 
texts are like, and I would say art and like uh, works of entertainment or theology or any, anything that anybody creates, they're like pieces of clothing and whoever interprets them, puts them on and they take the shape of the interpreter. They still have a, a lot of the handiwork. They have the handiwork and the planning and the craftsmanship of the person who made them, but they are as much the interpreter as the creator. And the, they'll walk around and they take their own form and they, they do their own things in the world. So, you know, if you, if you write a book, it, it will take on its own life. Yes. It has its own trajectory in the world. It's going to do things that the author could never do. Um, and it can encounter people that the author would never encounter, like personally, but that work encounters people. Um, same thing with theology. So I, I think it's really healthy to keep a separation there. Like, like, otherwise we wouldn't read anybody, you know, like we wouldn't read Martin Luther anymore because he was horribly anti-Semitic and, you know, horrible to people. Like you would just, you would literally have to discredit like most of Western history. <laughs> so I, I I'm, I, I'm with you. I think that this is great because I, I know what I really do think about all this now. Um, and what it is, is what you said, plus the idea that, um, you use what, we know about people and their actions to interpret their work, to at least bring that into a dialogue with their body of work or their creation, whether it's Yoder or Martin Luther or Bill Cosby. Uh, when we read or encounter their work, we take that into account, but we don't let that give us the basis for just demonizing and forgetting and discrediting their work. You know, it's a more complex thing. Well, I wish yeah. I could say that. I wish I could but say just, that. But just hold questions the whole time is like, what level of evil does it take for us to discredit? Because oh. in some <laughs> cases, in right. some cases, you you may maybe there are such horrors that you should discredit. But Alex, it's interesting that you read Mein Kampf. Like people still read Hitler to this day because maybe there's something to learn from his mind. You know, like maybe there's something there. I but but what if, what happens when it's the product of like evil? Like I brought that up and you said, you know, we said the medical research has been sealed. I think there is a level. I think it's when the product itself was created from suffering and pain of unwilling participants. Maybe that's when you just discount the, the work. Right. I don't know. I don't know. I I think it's still worth (laughs) studying. I I honestly think it's still worth studying. The medical research from concentration camps. Um, no, sorry. <laughs> no, um, I'm. Right. Uh, no, there are some atrocities. I think that that we so should never line. benefit from. There is a line, but it's like but I think it's farther out, out there. there. <laughs> agree. Hey, I agree with that. Absolutely. Wow, we agree. Look at that. <laughs> there is a line, but it's way far out there, especially it's way for far out there. right. I, I'm I'm probably more confused now <laughs> than I was when we started. <laughs> Uh, I think, cause I think, I think I agree with what both of you are saying on an intellectual level, but then I sit down and try to watch the Cosby show and I can't. And you experience disgust. Exactly. So yeah. it's, it's, it, yeah. it, so I, I think for stuff like that, maybe time literally does heal all wounds. Like, you know, maybe if it, maybe if it was less like intellectualized, like I can, I think I can still, I can still read Yoder and really enjoy it because I don't ever remember seeing him in my lifetime it wasn't something that i experienced as it was happening it's just historical fact to me that this guy did this and it's horrible but he also wrote this like it's it's distant it's separated from from me so their art is separated from me which then or the artist is separated from me which makes their art to be 
I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but I think that when it comes down to it practically that there is a level. And I think that that level is dependent upon our own personalities. I mean, but, yeah, how do societies determine what is taboo? You know, like we come to a relative consensus. Well, our society uh, bases it on money and PR. Like That's the sad thing too. Like, right. Cause a lot of these pieces of art are controlled by corporations and they can say, well, we're not going to put this out there because there's this overwhelming public sense of disgust against it. So we're just going to put it away and they have the power to do it. Well, no, no, no. I was, that's based on public consensus. So I'm, I'm saying like, how does any, any culture, like not just in a broad sense, determine like what is unacceptable behavior, like people either embrace it and say nothing and abide it or they cry out against it collectively and put a ban on it, you know? Like, so that's a whole process. And over time, like that's the whole story of civil rights. It's like people protesting and saying, this is not okay. This is unacceptable. This ought to be taboo or untabooing things that have been taboo. And because they've been taboo, they've harmed people like, you know, being out and gay. So as society continues to evolve, that's a process where there's a lot of shifts that take place. They think that the element of disgust is um, important to listen to, but it's important also not to be ruled by um, in some cases, because there's a time when, when um, interracial marriage was uh, caused people to feel physical disgust that felt wrong to them. And I don't know where I'm going with this argumentation because I am absolutely not right. trying to justify horrible no. behavior. Um, I'm trying to say that it, sometimes the, that those signals can misfire based on how we've been socialized. So I think with anything, it's worth at least weighing and talking about and critically reasoning with it. Yeah, I agree with that. It, it, it does come down to honesty, I think, in the end. I think we all have an aversion to dishonesty, right? When someone presents themselves or their work in a certain way, but that's not who they really are. So I think the more honest the work is, the easier it is to have that survive falls from grace. I like that. Yeah. yeah. It's a really, I really like good that. point. Yeah. All right. Well, that's, <laughs> that's I'm glad you guys left this conversation with clarity because <laughs> I'm still going to be thinking about this for a while. So let us know what you think. If you have anything to add to this conversation, um, you can go to the show notes at irenacast.com slash 82. That's irenacast.com slash 82. And for questions, comments, concerns, and suggestions for the show in general, you can always go to irenacast.com slash feedback for all the ways to get a hold of us. On the other side of the music, we are going to be bringing back an old segment called Say What? So say what is basically word association, right? Each of us have come up with... Say what? Exactly. Each of us have come up with two words, and then the other two hosts have to, immediately when they hear the word, to say the first thing that comes to their mind. Just raw, unfiltered. So again, this might be a situation where you have to put into practice the conversation we just had, and we could horribly offend you, and you may write us off or inspire you and you'll tell all your friends about us right or we may disclose the word horribly immoral i know and uh reinterpret our work with what you know about us there you go sorry i took the joke too far that's okay we we (laughs) sort of have an ongoing joke that we we believe that there's some psychologist out there that's listening to the show and writing this this scathing paper about (laughs) who we are (laughs) uh I'm ready for this, Jeff. All right, Alan. Since you are so ready, Alan, why don't you go ahead and give us the first word? All right, you ready? You have to say the very first thing that comes to your mind. Sharp. 
mind. Knife. Mind. Mind. I, like a sharp mind. Sharp mind. Yeah. We were yeah. just talking about like intellectualism. So very nice. A sharp mind and a knife. And I was okay. just, I was literally just cutting up some vegetables before we recorded. So I had my I was about to ask you my trusty knife chef's knife. Those. I was thinking of a chef's knife. Go. My beautiful shun knife, recommended by Alton Brown himself. It's amazing. Anyway, that's what I was thinking of. And now I'm hungry. Thank you. <laughs> that's what this always ends up as. All right. Jeff, do you have one for us? I do. Forever. Twenty one. <laughs> <laughs> You guys, I honestly like hate clothes shopping so much. I think it's so boring. Wow, uh, You're just, I, perpetuating the stereotype I with that one, Mona. <laughs> <laughs> I thought of like this. Uh, I saw the word "forever" in my mind on like a card, you know, like a card with like two rings, and it had lots of pastel colors, and it was like a sunburst behind it. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, did not think of Forever Twenty One though. I did not. Well, I just walked by yesterday, and um. Mm. I so much rather, like, instead of going to one of those stores, I'd so much rather go to a thrift store and hunt for, like, old crap that, like, single-use old kitchen things that they don't make them like that anymore, <laughs> or, like, old, yeah. ch- like, wooden chests, you know, or, like, old green cars that have, like, weird flowers stamped on them. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be, like, a, such a hoarder when I get older. I'm pretty sure. But my word is green. I just Cheetah. think of grass. <laughs> grass? Grass, yeah. I thought agreed. Agreed. Yeah. So, so this is so interesting. Like when I when I teach um, people about global interpretation, and I use like uh, talking about hermeneutics and all the different ways words can be interpreted, I always use the word green because it has a very obvious superficial meaning. But then there's there's actually tons of different meanings for the word green. It can mean like you said, Jeff Envy. It can Alan. It can refer to foliage. It can refer to money. It can refer to being new at something, like being green at it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another big one that I forgot. Being uh, sick uh, or environmentalism when you're being green. Green, exactly. There's so many different interpretations of that word in particular. Well, the only reason I thought greed was because I was trying to finish what you were going to say. Like you went greed and I was like, D, greed. And before you finished the word. So it was like more of a... Oh. Yeah, that's just why it came to mind. Because it was before, maybe you just said it too slow. <laughs> I tried to say green. <laughs> I should say enough. No, I, had I know. I heard you say green, top. but I, I anticipated oh. greed before you finished. Oh. I had a but magenta really tank worked. top in my head when you said the word. So I had to like push it to the side and literally there Wait, was grass. You have a magenta tank top on your head? In my was head. Oh. <laughs> because, because she said tank, I imagined a I'm magenta confused. tank top and I couldn't get it out of my head. And then she's all green. And I was like, ah. So and then so you I said pushed. you pushed it aside and there was grass on the and other I, side. I'm wondering right. if the grass is green around the other side. It was. It absolutely was. Right. Totally green. It's not easy being green, they say. No, it's not. It's not easy being green. Okay, who's next? Alan? Alan, going yes. back around the horn. Here we go. Are you guys ready? Mm-hmm. Yes. Regretful. My Bye. third grade bullpen. <laughs> that picture is great by the way yeah fantastic you were there so if you oh, i remember if you just started listening to the show alan's my cousin so yeah you would have remembered that really unfortunate bullpen oh man i, I got called a little boy a lot <laughs> yeah. speaking of my gender identity awareness i guess <laughs> um. uh, 
I, yeah. lo- I loved that Mona though. We'll have to post a picture of it on, uh, on, uh, Instagram, I guess. She was so lovable. I mean, no, we spot all the time. How can you guys say? <laughs> yeah. It's cause you guys got all the comfortable beds and stuff. Jeff, what'd you think of? I said pie. You pie. Regret- <laughs> it? He's like, man, I regret eating that pie. That whole, the whole pie. <laughs> like I was flooded with the memory the last time I ate a whole pie. <laughs> hey, wasn't that one uh, they um, our mutual friend made? And yes, it was like banana. The, it was cream. banana cream pie, and it was delicious. You can't stop with that though, because no. it's like homemade from like thousands of years of banana cream pie history, all down into that one gorgeous. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Okay, um, I had a word and then I forgot it because <laughs> I'm hungry. Um. Alarm. Fuck. I just thought of a fire alarm on a ceiling. A little white one. The kind that you take the battery out of so it would stop beeping. That's funny because that's exactly what I was looking at when I said that. <laughs> <laughs> I literally emptied my brain, so I think I just received psychic vibes. Wait, we just connected, you. Alan. We guys, melded. guys, I used to teach um this I used to teach uh K6 music and I ha- I set up a little stage area for the classroom and to encourage the kids to have like self confidence and to like get out of their shell. Um, at the end of class, we would have stage time and the kids could come up and perform for each other. So they could sing songs or tell jokes, whatever they want. So this one kid with these giant Coke bottle glasses in first, no, he was a kindergartner. He always wanted to get up and every week, you know, he would, uh, raise his hand. So I finally called him and he got up and he was like, he stood there, like just kind of shy, sheepishly smiling at everybody. And then he started making up his own song about everything in the room. He was like, and the ceiling is nice, and the floor. And he just kept going, uh, singing about everything in the room. And I feel like that's what Jeff just did. <laughs> it was adorable. <laughs> <laughs> it was so adorable. Jeff, Jeff, you're adorable. Oh, sorry. Adorable, Jeff. Adorable. I bet you've never been called adorable before, have you, Jeff? No, sure I don't think has. I have. When not that I remember. Kid. When you were a little kid. No, you, you not when I was a little kid. Part. It's not a word that I associate with you, Jeff. Yeah. Well, you I, sure like silently longing to be called adorable. Then now you have <laughs> You got me. I am. All right. Mona, I think this is this is your word. Last one. Yeah. All right. Ready? Yeah. White. I, I used to think that <laughs> I was like, I just got really uncomfortable. <laughs> Really? Yes. What? How? Because the first mind that came was like privilege, and then I like questioned whether that should be the first thing I thought of, and I just got. <laughs> that was such a long silence. That's nice. That's I was just I, I was just gonna say that I I thought I was a very like uh, creative person in my and very imaginative, but I'm like ruthlessly literal. Like I saw a whiteboard in my head. Oh, that's funny because I'm staring at my whiteboard right now. It organizes my life. Thank you. Hey, think of of your credit card numbers right now. Ready to go. (laughs) Because I want to. Alan, you're turning your gift into something forcible. No, stop trying to find me. One, six. Stop it. No, I would not use telepathic powers for bad. Of course not. I absolutely so, would. No, I'm the just kind saying. of person who goes to the dog park just to hang out with people uh, and be around people, and I end up listening to all their problems and basically doing my job. Yeah, but you could time. listen to their problems without even having to talk to them. That's like the that best would, thing in the world. 
You, you don't no. have to talk to them. They're not <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to tell you their problems. Like, no, if you could read mine, that's what I'm saying. Like, oh, you wouldn't that have would to. Be way too much pressure. That would be the worst. That would be, that the, would worst be thing. the worst thing ever. I, I enjoy when people open up and talk, you know, about themselves. It's like giving, being given a gift. Callum, can I talk to you about something? Do, do you, know, you know how many times I've heard that? Like in the last <laughs> week? I swear. Really? Yeah. I'm going to call you up, just tell you that, and then hang up. Sometimes it gets me a little bit like heartbeats a little bit fast, and it's like, oh crap, what did I do? <laughs> but it's oh, dude, totally. Whenever someone says that to me, I'm always like, I'm in trouble. That's my first inclination. I'm in trouble. My favorite thing in ministry, and Jeff can probably attest to this, is when you get the the invite to someone's house to for dinner, and you're just sitting there enjoying yourself, like really enjoying these friends in this company, thinking that's what, and then like. Toward the end of the night, they're like, "So the reason we brought you here?" And you're like, "Oh, crap. oh, that's the worst." <laughs> this is an intervention. Oh no! They're like, "This thing really bothered me," and then they want to. It's like, "Wow, I was under the impression we were friends. And we were having <laughs> fun this whole time. At least cut to the chase, like at the beginning, and then have the fun." Right. Yeah, it's so awkward. Invite me in to do something and tell me in the office. But anyway. I had a I had a friend who did that all the time just for fun without having anything to say, but he would just ruin really good moments. So, <laughs> I'm, <gonna> tell you. <laughs> it was terrible. I'm gonna do that to you now. Just do it. Oh hey you guys, that reminds me actually I have something kind of serious to bring up. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. No, I don't like but it. I think we were joking before you even started and it still made my heart drop. It's yeah, wow. it made my heart drop and I knew uh, I was joking. <laughs> like, I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. All right. Jeff's, Jeff says, wow, he's like, I'm not he's even like, affected. Things are getting weird. You're, you're a robot, Jeff. Sorry. No, wow. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna go ahead and say that'll do it for us this week because I have the power to do that. If you enjoy what you hear and you want to support Irenicast, you can go to irenicast.com slash support. Apparently, I don't need support because I wouldn't feel it anyway for the many ways... <laughs> To show love to our other co-hosts who would appreciate your appreciation, you can check no, us out. Show love to me and just tell Ellen your problems. Absolutely. <laughs> and just ignore me. I'm not here. So for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm Mona. And I'm Alan. Thanks for joining the conversation. <laughs>